Today, we're talking about the off-duty pilot that just tried to kill a plane full of people. We've got shocking new updates. We've got big updates on Jonathan Majors and Dylan Dennis's legal troubles. YouTubers are causing chaos in foreign countries and it's getting so bad we might start to see bans. You've got Gaza running out of time and water. And the House has finally elected a new speaker who Republicans say is a definitely real person who they didn't just make up. We're talking about all that and so much more on today's brand new Philip DeFranco show. You daily dive into the news all made possible by beautiful bastards like you who buy Wake and Make coffee. Which great news there, if you haven't tried it yet or you're needing a restock, we just restocked on the site. So head on over and get a bag or three, because if you haven't already, it's time to ditch that burnt, bitter, and overpriced coffee that you've gotten used to. And like I always say, I'm so confident that you're gonna love it once you actually taste it. Once you go to wakeandmakecoffee.com to buy your first bag or three, you can get them for up to 50% off. You're talking about like 50 cents a cup of coffee. If you go to a coffee shop that's like 350 or $6, you're essentially saving money by buying my coffee. But enough of me selling you, we got a lot of news to talk about. So let's just jump into it. Starting with, if you are a YouTuber traveling abroad, I have a general request, and that is, please don't be an ass. And don't get me wrong, I know that the vast majority are following the place's laws and customs and trying to stay in the good graces of the locals, but some in the pursuit of views are just doing whatever they can to ruin it for everyone. And this time I'm talking about a YouTuber by the name of Phidias and his now removed video, I traveled across Japan for free. And I say now removed because YouTube has taken it down for violating community guidelines. Right, and so in this, he and three others raced across the country for $10,000 for his 2.4 million subscribers. But the issue is that traveling is definitely not free no matter how many quote travel hacks you employ. So the question is, well, how did he do it? One way was acting homeless and getting about $4 from someone, but that still wasn't enough because just that alone meant that he already broke the law because for better or worse, begging is not allowed in Japan and could actually be a criminal offense. But then making matters worse was he then snuck onto the public transport system. And at one point in the video, he was actually caught by a train conductor for not paying his fare. He then pretends to be sick. He makes a run for it and sneaks onto another train where he hides in the bathroom to dodge workers asking for his ticket. And all of his antics drew intense criticism with comments under the video reportedly saying things like, as someone who's lived in Japan for many years, it's sad to see people like this visit Japan and damage the reputation of foreigners. Also, if you can't pay for public transport, don't use it. As well as Japan is definitely a tourist-friendly country. Please do not abuse their kindness and politeness. And with all this, Phidias has since apologized in a comment to Japan, writing, hello, beautiful people. I apologize to the Japanese people if we made them feel bad. That was not our goal. And saying from now on, I'm going to be making more research about the cultures we go to and try to prevent this from happening again. I love you all. But also here, the, the reality is that Phidias is hardly the only bad apple out there. Or with there being more infamous examples like kick streamer Johnny Somali. With his antics, including things like screaming Hiroshima and Nagasaki to random people in public places and just generally being obnoxious. In fact, he gets so bad that he's been confronted by locals as well as foreigners because of it. Sometimes they're relatively peaceful, such as when an American walks up asking, is this you? And then pointing out how his wife was Japanese and... You go over there insulting people like that. You know how many people died from Hiroshima joking about this? I know. So why are you joking about people? I was drunk. I was drunk. I know, you know how they family suffered. People suffered because oh. of that. You're on the train harassing people like that. I was drunk. Don't do it again, bro. I, I haven't done I, anything I see, since. I seen how people in Tokyo whoop your. You're lucky I don't do the same thing. And then there are other times that involve more violence, such as when Somali and a friend were knocked out by another foreigner for being general asses in public. Which, I mean, you know you're especially hated when the dude who punched you in the face has multiple people clapping because of it. And so with all this, we've started seeing people making serious calls for this type of content to be banned in Japan. And notably, it actually already appears to be on the government's radar after the cabinet secretary warned that these creators should refrain from invading privacy and causing trouble. But as far as what actually happens from here, time will tell. And then, if you're ever on a plane and you're like, I just, I want to 
murder everyone on this plane. Please don't do that. And I know that sounds like a weird request, but I don't want you to be like this guy on this Alaska Airlines flight from Washington to San Francisco on Sunday. Right? He's an off-duty pilot named Joseph Emerson, and he's in the jump seat inside the cockpit. Right? Because apparently it's normal for off-duty pilots to hitch a ride between airports. And so he's just sitting there, and then he allegedly tries to pull two handles that shut off valves in the wing, cutting off fuel to the engines to suppress fires. It was unclear whether he actually pulled them or not, but an airline statement seemed to suggest that he did, saying, after they are pulled, some residual fuel remains in the line, and the quick reaction of our crew to reset the handles restored fuel flow and prevented fuel starvation. So the pilot kicks him out of the cockpit and reportedly he walks to the back of the plane, with him allegedly telling a flight attendant, you need to cuff me right now or it's going to be bad. So the flight crew, they restrain Emerson reportedly without incident, and one passenger reportedly hears a flight attendant tell Emerson, we're going to be fine, it's okay, we'll get you off the plane. Then as the plane was descending, he allegedly tried to grab an emergency exit handle before a flight attendant stopped him again, with the plane then making an emergency landing important where police escort him off the plane in handcuffs. And now Emerson's been charged with 83 counts of attempted murder, right? One for each passenger and crew member who would have died if the plane crashed, as well as 83 counts of reckless endangerment and one count of endangering an aircraft. And as far as why he did this, everyone was really just kind of puzzled at first, guessing it must have been some kind of mental breakdown, which is also backed up by a report that he was heard in the moments prior to the incident saying something to the effect of, I'm not right. But now we have some idea because according to court documents, Emerson told police that he struggled with depression and that a friend had died recently, and adding that he had taken psychedelic mushrooms about 48 hours before the incident and he hadn't slept for 40 hours and was in a mental crisis. And according to an affidavit, he said he thought he was dreaming and wanted to wake up, which if true, it looks like we almost saw the mass death of 84 people because of a really bad trip. And then Dylan Dennis wants you to know he was only joking. It was a goof. He wasn't for months relentlessly slut shaming the fiance of a guy who was about to fight. It was just jokes. Or at least that's what he's arguing in a legal filing obtained by TMZ. Right? And for some background for the few of you that don't know, Logan Paul's fiance, Nina Agdahl, sued Dylan Dennis and sought a restraining order after he repeatedly made social media posts slut shaming her, discussing her dating history and threatening to release explicit images of her. A lawsuit that also alleged that he violated revenge porn laws and also hacked into her Snapchat to access private photos. And all that happening ahead of his fight with Logan, which was held last week, with Logan winning by disqualification. Also notably after Logan made him look like a fool in the ring. But also now, even though the fight is over, that doesn't mean the lawsuit is. So in those court documents that TMZ just obtained, Dylan said that he was only playing the role of the bad guy to promote the match with Logan, saying his posts were clearly, quote, parody, satire, comedy, farce, or opinion, all made to up public interest, adding that he doesn't even have a real feud with Logan. Also claiming that he's protected by the First Amendment and arguing that anyone with internet access could easily have found the photos he shared of Nina. We're Robert Freund, also tweeting out documents where Dylan argued that because Nina had posted intimate images before, he did not know she didn't consent to the images that he shared. Well, also, a potential issue for Dylan's argument here is that even after the fight, right, the thing that he said that he was trying to just, like, promote, Dylan has since then tweeted mocking Logan and Nina. Those posts are not nearly as pointed or explicit as the ones leading up to the fight. It's also worth noting that separately, this comes as some fans have been worried by concerning since-deleted posts that Dylan recently made where he says he doesn't want to be on this earth anymore. But like I said, that post was removed, and right now, much of the conversation still revolves around the lawsuit. Right, among other things, he has claimed that Nina offered a settlement of 400k at one point, but saying she can go suck another dick. But yeah, ultimately we're gonna have to wait to see how all this plays out. And then, this medical mystery has turned into a murder mystery over the past couple of months. Because 32-year-old Betty Bowman goes to a hospital one morning for stomach distress and dehydration. Initially, doctors think she has food poisoning, but despite the treatment, her condition only worsens. With her suffering cardiac issues, fluid in her lungs, and organ failure, and then dying several days later. And as far as what killed her, Betty's husband, Connor, suggested to the medical staff that she had a rare life-threatening illness called HLH. And reportedly, that's also what he tells people was the cause of her death, even though the hospital test came back inconclusive. And then, as an autopsy is about to begin, Connor reportedly tries to stop it, saying that Betty's death was natural, that she didn't want to be a cadaver, and that she needs to be cremated immediately. So the medical examiner is like, that's, this is sketchy, no, fuck off, and he performs the autopsy anyway. And surprise, surprise, they find that Betty actually died from the toxic effects of colchicine, a medicine used to treat gout. Or in other words, she was poisoned, which just happens to be this really incredible 
incredible coincidence because her husband, Connor, just so happens to be a poison specialist. And this isn't like an accidental overdose situation because Betty didn't even have gout, much less a prescription for gout medication. And guess what? How odd. Six days before her hospitalization, Connor just so happened to reportedly research that same medicine. He also converted his wife's weight to kilograms and multiplied that by 0.8, which just so happens to calculate to the lethal dosage rate for colchicine, with him then also reportedly searching where to buy the drug online and search things like internet browsing history, can it be used in court, and delete Amazon data police. And reportedly, someone who spoke to Betty before she died said that he and Betty just so happened to have homemade drinks together the night before she got sick. So you take all of that, you don't gotta be a conspiracy theorist to think that Connor poisoned his wife. And so now he has been charged with second degree murder, with one of Betty's friends also telling investigators that her marriage was imperiled due to infidelity and other issues, and divorce was on the horizon. Also adding that the couple had separate bank accounts due to Connor's debts, and that Connor was set to receive $500,000 in life insurance. And so with all of that, you know, this is a very sad story because someone lost their life. They were killed by their husband. But then also at the same time, my brain just explodes at like, Connor, how did you think you were gonna get away with this? Like, I genuinely don't know how you could have made it more obvious you killed your wife. Like, even before we got the details, what is the surface level way that you would describe this story? Poison specialist wife dies in mysterious way. Do you think no one was gonna check in on that? You fucking dumb psycho. And yeah, I guess then for everyone else, uh, just a reminder that it is the ones closest to you that you need to be afraid of, like just statistically. And then, yo, Jonathan Major's case will be moving to trial. Because just this morning, a judge in New York denied his legal team's motion to dismiss the case. And this, of course, because Majors is facing misdemeanor charges of assault and harassment related to an alleged domestic violence dispute back in March. With him denying the allegations and even filing a complaint that he was the victim of the attack that night. And actually with all this, in recent days, more details and claims have emerged from the situation with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office saying yesterday that it is now including information from a police report in London in its case. And with that, details of that report are currently unknown, but according to Deadline, quote, medical records from the United Kingdom, photographs taken by medical providers, and correspondence with a medical provider stemming from a September 2022 incident are now part of the prosecution's evidence. Also in the same motion, prosecutors allege that Major's legal team pulled publicity stunts and misrepresented evidence in the case. This reportedly including telling the press that there is a video of the alleged March attack, even though no such footage apparently exists. Prosecutors also claiming that Major's lawyers provided a witness statement from a taxi cab driver present during the incident, but that driver allegedly said he never wrote, approved, or even was aware of that statement. Rolling Stone also backing similar allegations up, saying that in June, Major's legal team provided witness statements from women who dated or were close with Major's. But then you had the outlet saying when they contacted those women, half said they never gave his team permission to release such statements. Another declined to share the statement that was credited to her because it was not truthful, and only one actually consented to publicizing the statement. The motion also spelled out more details from the March incident, saying that it all began when the woman noticed Major's received a text saying something like, wish I was kissing you right now. Saying when the woman tried to grab his phone, Major allegedly twisted her arm and struck her. With him then getting out of the car, she then followed him, but he allegedly grabbed her and threw her back inside, causing her to sustain injuries like bruising, a laceration, and a fractured finger. But of course, like I said, on the other side, you have Major's claiming that he was the victim. And with that, some reports said that the accuser was actually expected to surrender to countercharges today. And that, even though the DA's office made it clear they would not prosecute her, even if the NYPD brought charges forward. Though also, reports as of filming from today have not stated if she did in fact surrender or not. But what we do know right now is that a trial date has been set for November 29th. And so for now, we'll have to keep our eyes on this incredibly messy situation. And then, yo, we've got football, concerts, baseball, hockey, theater, and more tons of events happening for every mood, distraction, or taste in entertainment. And thanks to the sponsor of today's show, SeatGeek, you'll get $20 off using my code Phil for tickets. So get out there and treat yourself. You deserve it. And amazingly, for those who have used this offer in the past, I got you covered too. Yeah, a special offer for you as well. You just use code DeFranco for $10 off any purchase. And that's whether you've bought once before or a hundred times. DeFranco gets 
you $10 off your next SeatGeek purchase. And y'all, with over 28 million downloads, SeatGeek is the number one rated ticketing app. And with Queen B herself on tour right now, Arctic Monkeys in, don't forget Adele's residency in Vegas, you need SeatGeek. And I say that as someone not just sponsored by SeatGeek, but who uses it for pretty much everything. Whether it be to catch some comedy, go watch a Broadway show, watch a baseball game, how I've used them to go to the Super Bowl. Especially because SeatGeek wants to make sure that you're getting a good deal. So when you're on the app, you look for the green dots. Green means good deal, red means bad. And every ticket is backed by their buyer guarantee. And SeatGeek is the only site that lets you return your tickets ahead of the event with swaps. But main things, that is $20 off your first purchase with promo code Phil. And returning SeatGeek buyers get $10 off just by using code DeFranco. Just make sure you click the link in the description to download the app. And then the Virginia Republican Party is sending porn to voters, but also not in a fun way. I'll explain. Right, last month we covered the story involving Susanna Gibson, a nurse practitioner who's running for a key seat on the Virginia House of Delegates. And a very important thing is that her district, which falls outside of Richmond, is just one of seven toss-ups that will ultimately decide the fate of the House, where Republicans currently hold a very slim majority. But then Gibson's race was made even more high stakes after she became the subject of a scandal when the Washington Post reported that she and her husband live-streamed themselves performing sex acts for tips on the legal porn site Chatterbait. And those live streams then getting archived on other sites and brought to the Post's attention by a Republican operative who denied having ties to Gibson's Republican opponent or other groups in this year's elections. But with that, Gibson responded by calling this a smear campaign and a violation of her privacy, saying she wasn't aware that the videos had been archived and didn't authorize it. But regardless, after that, we saw Gibson dipping pretty significantly in the polls. And so now Republicans are trying to weaponize this even more by sending out thousands of flyers to voters in the district that contain screenshots of images pulled from the explicit videos of Gibson and her husband. With also pictures posted on social media showing that the flyers were sent out in envelopes with bold red lettering that read, do not open if you are under the age of 18, and warning explicit material included 18 plus only. Which is really quick, as a former 10 to 16 year old, that's like sending a package to my house and it's like, hey, please don't open. I might contain cool secrets, maybe even sexy secrets. So that said, you have local news reporting that the screenshots were censored. Other media outlets also saying that and from what they've seen from the flyer shared online, they don't contain full nude images. But of course, they have still received a ton of backlash. Many condemning the move, among other things, calling Republicans hypocrites because they recently passed a law to restrict access to Pornhub by ironically making people verify their age. It's something you can't really do using snail mail. And this, including from top Democrats in the state, like President of the State's Senate, who tweeted that the state's Republican governor wants to ban Pornhub, but had his party campaign committee mail out nude photos of a candidate, and adding he's a man of privilege that doesn't understand consent, and that should petrify every voter in Virginia. Revenge porn is a crime, and that includes in politics. Though very notably here, experts have said that it's unclear whether Virginia's revenge porn laws would actually apply to these flyers because they don't show full nude photos. Though that also does seem to be like a pretty big loophole in Virginia's revenge porn laws. Now that said, as far as how Gibson herself has responded, her campaign released a statement accusing a Republican opponent in the state GOP of, quote, trying to distract voters from their extreme agenda to ban abortion, defund schools, and allow violent criminals to access weapons of war. Meanwhile, you have the state Republican Party hitting back by arguing they only sent out the flyers to hit back at Gibson's claim that the explicit videos of her were leaked by Republicans, arguing they were publicly available online and that the flyer just corrects her false statements using already published mainstream media news accounts and Gibson's own public words as documented via her videos. So you have many saying it's pretty underhanded and misleading to imply that, hey, they were just public because even though the videos technically weren't leaked, no one really knew about them and they were brought to the post by a Republican operative. And again, they were dug up from an archive where Gibson says they were saved without her knowledge or consent. But also beyond all that, we saw the state's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, issuing a response that really hit on the, kind of the main thing of this issue, arguing the candidate's personal life is something that the candidate needs to explain. Right? And that is ultimately what this whole thing is going to come down to. Whether people believe that a candidate for public office actually does need to explain their personal life to the public, especially if the thing being talked about is something that happened between two consenting adults. And unfortunately for Gibson here, unless the polling changes, unless something else happens from here, it seems like it matters to enough people. And then, y'all, the U.S. House actually elected a speaker. After weeks of division and four different nominations, Republicans finally came together to elect a right-wing Trump supporter literally no one has ever heard of. It's like they got into the spirit of Halloween and they Frankensteined a guy together with some parts they had lying around. Even his name sounds like the D 
default selection from a politician starter pack, it is Mike Johnson. Which, like, you might as well have called him real person, make actual guy. But also, with this, if you're like, when did this guy even throw his name in the ring? Right, you're definitely not alone with that because it all went down insanely fast. With Johnson reportedly nominated for speaker by a majority of Republicans in a secret late vote yesterday, and that notably only after he had already been rejected by them earlier in the day. Because Johnson initially lost to Representative Tom Emmer, the House Majority Whip and third-ranking Republican in the chamber. But then, literally just hours after he was selected, Emmer dropped out of the running after it was made abundantly clear that he would never have enough support from the far-right faction of the party. With also Trump himself putting the final nail on the coffin and attacking Emmer on Truth Social. So then the Republicans went back and they were like, "Okay, let's just do the other guy." With him then taking the matter to a full floor vote today where we saw all 220 Republicans present voting unanimously to elect Johnson. But, you know, with this, there's a question of who is this man that no one had really heard of but was able to bring a divided Republican party together. And so looking into that, according to the character profile Republicans have put together for this former NPC, Johnson is a 51-year-old constitutional lawyer who represents Louisiana's 4th District. Very notably here, he has only served in Congress since 2017, making him the most inexperienced House Speaker in 140 years in terms of House service. But still, for whatever reason, he does it for the Republicans. But he has the support from the hard-right faction of the party because while he's not a member of the Freedom Caucus, he is still very far-right leaning. He is staunchly conservative, in fact, one of the most conservative representatives of the House. He's also a member of the Christian right faction of his party, and he shares many of their beliefs, as well as has ties to Protestant fundamentalist groups. Among other positions, Johnson has opposed same-sex marriage and abortion, supports anti-LGBTQ plus legislation and a nationwide abortion ban. Also, a very key thing is that in addition to his very right-leaning stances, he is a Trump ally who actually served on Trump's impeachment defense team. And so actually with that, not only did he vote against certifying the election, but also played a huge role in trying to overturn the election. In fact, we're talking about a man who has been widely described as an architect of the House Republicans' effort to block the certification of the election, with Johnson specifically helping craft arguments for those members to use to undermine democracy without spreading Trump's lies. Beyond that, he also led a group of Republicans in a legal brief backing a lawsuit aiming to overturn the election in several battlegrounds based on the same arguments. And even after the insurrection, Johnson has repeatedly defended the actions of members who voted against certifying the election. So yeah, uh, you know, a gem of a guy is now the most powerful Republican in the country. But as far as what happens from here, I mean, we really don't know, right? Electing a speaker so at the very least business can start is not the same as doing business. It's not the same as actually passing legislation, so we're gonna have to see what actually happens here. Especially as the far-right faction of the party has made it clear time and time again that they have no problem with single-handedly holding up the chamber to achieve their own selfish goals. I mean, that was even evidence at the actions of the different candidates for speaker prior to this. But hey, at the very least, we do now technically have a speaker, and so now we can look to, at the very least, uh, November 17th. Because now that weeks have been wasted around this whole speakership fiasco, we have to to avoid a whole ass government shutdown with the deadline on this now being even tighter than it was. So, you know, I uh, look forward to a lot of fun stuff in the weeks ahead. And then, y'all, tensions are continuing to escalate in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. Right, since the fighting began, Palestinian authorities claim that at least 6,500 Gazans have been killed and nearly 18,000 have been injured. And on the other side, you have Israeli officials saying that 1,400 people within Israel have been killed, 5,400 injured. So those numbers are very likely to go up as Hamas's rockets continue to fly into Israel while Gaza continues to get pummeled by Israeli missiles and airstrikes. Not to mention the impending ground invasion could happen at any time. There's also a fear that the conflict could escalate beyond just Israel and Hamas as Iran's so-called axis of resistance launched attacks against both Israel and U.S. bases in the region. However, the thing at the forefront of most people's minds with the situation within Gaza itself are how many people are surviving with minimal supplies. And with that, an Oxfam director accusing Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war, citing the fact that aid into Gaza is still limited. And one of the particular concerns was fuel, with the U.N. agency working in the region tweeting out yesterday, warning, if we do not get fuel urgently, we will be forced to halt our operations.
operations in the Gaza Strip as of tomorrow night. And that's despite the fact that aid convoys have reportedly been trickling into the region. However, there's also been some pushback against the U.S. Some have pointed out that in now-deleted tweets, the same agency complained about Hamas had, quote, removed fuel and medical equipment from the agency's compound in Gaza City. Well, Israel itself has also accused Hamas of stealing the fuel as well and storing it for themselves by posting a photo of large storage tanks and tweeting, these fuel tanks are inside Gaza. They contain more than 500,000 liters of fuel. Ask Hamas if you can have some. But then on the other hand, you have people saying, hey, if what you're claiming is true, Hamas is hoarding all this fuel and you know where it is, right? Like their posts claim that it would have been bombed a while ago. But with all this, you know, it hasn't stopped the UN from continuing its calls for aid and they provided a bunch of stats to back up that way more convoys need to be allowed in. Right? For example, on Sunday, there were 44,000 units of bottled water sent to Gaza, which may sound like a lot, but it's barely enough to address the drinking needs of 22,000 people just for a single day. They also pointed out that a significant number of hospitals and health clinics in Gaza are closed due to fighting or a lack of fuel. Also adding to the issues the UN is facing are comments made by Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Because in a speech yesterday about the situation, he made this comment. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. With that getting him into some hot water, many condemning what they saw as him giving a justification for Hamas's attack, with leaders at Israel's Holocaust Memorial blasting him, saying that those who seek to understand look for a justifying context, do not categorically condemn the perpetrators, and do not call for the unconditional and immediate release of the abducted, failed the test. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres failed the test. While online we saw replies like, hi UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, did this place also not happen in a vacuum? Asking for 6 million friends. And Boko Haram didn't kidnap 270 girls in a vacuum and it's time for a ceasefire with it, said nobody ever. And also with this you had Israeli officials calling for him to resign. However, Guterres has pushed back, saying, I am shocked by the misrepresentations by some of my statements yesterday in the Security Council as if, as if I was justifying acts of terror by Hamas. This is false. It was the opposite. With him there pointing to other parts of his speech where he clearly condemns the attack. And with all this, it's very important to note that there were also plenty of people who defended his comment. Although some there also felt like it was just a mild statement. But ultimately with this, I think one of the key takeaways from all of this is that regardless of how you feel about this situation, no one should want 2 million people who are just there to starve or be slowly denied the most basic necessities. And something has to be done to get aid across the border while at the same time ensuring that Hamas isn't pillaging it. And then let's talk about yesterday today where we take a look back at yesterday's show where we covered a lot of news in that extra large show. We dive into those comments and we see what your thoughts are, your opinions are, maybe sometimes even what your experiences are. And there we saw a lot of conversation and a lot of discuss regarding those teens. They went on this hit and run spree. They killed somebody. Meanwhile, they're just laughing. Also, since then, I mean, they were laughing and playing around in court. So y'all were saying things like, the fact that those teens thought a hit and run wasn't serious is appalling. Though with that, we also saw some people pushing back. Conrad writing, they are children. People like to pretend BIPOC are older than they are due to racist stereotypes. And adding, I'm not defending their actions, but I highly doubt that either you or Francisco Franco would care about it as much if they were white teens. Which one, uh, Conrad, I, I don't normally do this during this segment because usually, you know, the conversation can be pretty tame. Uh, go fuck yourself. If you've watched this show for any amount of time, you know I don't give a shit if these kids were white. Scumbags and monsters come in all colors and we've talked about a lot of white ones. And luckily there were a lot of people that pushed back against your bullshit argument. With some also noting this guy is going around the comment section crafting some racial bias as if he didn't just listen to two murderers laughing while killing innocent people. And I also agree with those of you who say they should be tried as adults. Also there was some conversation around the Amazon pee being sold as a drink story. Some of y'all saying I've seen a marked increase in discarded bottles on the side of the road with suspicious yellow liquids in them. Saying it's disgusting and to think this is caused by Amazon is infuriating. 
investigating. I hope they're held to the fire for this one. They pushed those poor drivers so hard they're desperate enough to do something this disgusting. Amazon needs to have some serious changes happen in their corporate structure. And some claiming I've literally had an Amazon driver leave a bag full of piss outside of my front yard. But you also had some people saying all truck drivers end up peeing in bottles. It was actually one of the most surprising things I found when I became a truck driver a year ago. Many shippers and receivers do not have bathrooms available for drivers, and sometimes, because of heavy regulations, we have to stop and sleep where there are no facilities, and saying it really isn't limited to Amazon van drivers. And that was also backed up by other people saying, you know, they're a FedEx ground driver, and it's a problem with their drivers as well. Then, regarding Jenna Ellis screwing herself, but ultimately taking a plea deal, a lot of people agreed with the statement. I love how Jenna Ellis raised 200k in legal funds from her followers so she could hire good lawyers, and then her lawyers clearly looked at her work and went, dear God, you're fucked. Please take the plea deal. But also, I do want to know, there was so much more being talked about in those comments. There's also so much more we talked about on that show. So if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. And that is where your daily dive into the news is going to end today. But remember, for more news you need to know and watch, I get covered right here. You can click or tap or I got links in the description. And of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you right back here tomorrow for more news.